0: While she was still in college, Peggy Grandy worked as an intern in the office of former President Ronald Reagan in Los Angeles, California. Peggy went on to become Reagan's executive assistant, ultimately working for the president for 10 years after he left the White House. Her life-shaping experience is captured in a new memoir titled The President Will See You Now, My Stories and Lessons from Ronald Reagan's Final Years. Besides sharing never before seen photos and intimate stories from those years, Peggy provides readers with a frank account of the challenges and heartbreak surrounding Reagan's Alzheimer's diagnosis in 1994 and his death in 2004. Peggy Grandy joins us today from Los Angeles, California. Peggy, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it.
0: So you grew up in Southern California, according to the book, obsessed with presidents.
1: (laughs) A little bit. I kind of (laughs) was that nerdy little kid who loved presidents and government and the White House and Washington, D.C. And it was a little bit of an obsession, which I guess if you grew up in Virginia or Maryland, that might be a common thing. But for a young girl, especially back in the day when girls necessarily weren't pursuing careers in politics, I was that nerdy little kid who just was obsessed and dreamed someday I might make it to D.C., never even, I think, dreamed big enough I would ever meet a president, let alone work for one. So
0: you were seven years old when Reagan was inaugurated in 1981. And fast forward to when you started working for uh, President Reagan. He was 78. And how old were you at that point? Tell us about that internship.
1: Yeah. So um, my final year at Pepperdine University, I was a communications major with a minor in business. Politics was just a little side hobby of mine. But again, even at that point, I never thought that the political arena would be um, something that I could actually pursue But Ronald Reagan had just left office. He came from Washington, D.C., back to his home in L.A., and I was raised by a father who raised me to believe that anything was possible and that somebody's got to have the job you want, and it might as well be you. So I believed my dad and took a chance and actually old school, wrote a letter, typed it up and wrote a letter to the office of Ronald Reagan asking for an opportunity to volunteer in their office never expecting to even hear from them. I got a phone call not too much later asking me to come in for an interview. The interview went really well. I was hired on the spot and thought it would be just for a short period of time as I was finishing college. And fast forward 10 years later, I found myself still in the office and really it became the career of a lifetime.
0: Right. And so you, you began your internship in 1989. That was well before the internet age. And, right. Um, <laughs> so can you describe some of your duties? I, I thought it was interesting that you wrote that you went from, quote, naive college student to someone who was comfortable in the world of motorcades and private jets. What was your typical day like in those early years especially?
1: Yeah. Well, starting, you know, as a typical intern, you did the grunt work, you answered phones, you clipped newspapers, you ran errands, you were kind of a catch all for anything and everything in the office. I was assigned initially to the public affairs office, which as a communications major was fantastic. Mm -hmm. And so I got to be involved in speech creation and messaging and, you know, editing speeches, loading them old school on the teleprompter. He only used the teleprompter when we did a, a large televised speech or something, but it was It was quite the process, not as easy as it is now that it's digital, Um, but it was just fun to be part of seeing how his messaging was created. And then after I had been there only a few months, I was graduating from college They offered me a full-time staff position. The woman who hired me returned to D.C., and um, her role then was vacant, so I stepped in as the executive assistant to the chief of staff and served in that capacity for the next few years. He now is the publisher of the Washington Post and an incredible man, so I learned so much Hmm. from him Hmm. that well prepared me for Ronald Reagan's executive assistant, who he had had since before he was governor, ultimately retired, and they asked me if I would take that role. So I had been working there about four years. I was still very young, but by that time really had felt like I had transitioned through that naivete and the big wide open eyes thinking, wow, this world is so foreign um, to a place that I felt like I could be comfortable and add value and saw that there was a role for me there. So I learned so much from the people around me. I would say that was the biggest thing was just being a sponge and soaking it all in. How did people talk to people on the phone? How did they interact? How did they diplomatically accomplish the goals um, that we had in the office? And really, that was a very steep learning curve. But at the same time, I felt like it was the place I was always destined to be and felt very well suited for that role. Hmm. Because? Well, In a way, it just seemed like it had all been meant to be in Mm -hmm. some crazy sort of way. I mean, how ironic that this young little girl in Southern California is so obsessed with presidents (laughs) and winds up not only getting to meet one, but to work in his office. Right after Ronald Reagan left office, so in February of 89, he came to Pepperdine. I was still a student there, never knew that this would be my future with him, but he came to give um, his second post-presidency address. Mm -hmm. Of course, I was thrilled. I got up early. I got down to the field house, was so excited to be even in the same venue as him. And back in the day of film cameras, I took an entire roll of film of this little speck of a dot of Ronald Reagan. And it was the greatest thrill of my life, even to be in the same Faces him. Mm-hmm. I never could have imagined what the next few months would bring, and that I would not only get to shake his hand, but to serve him um, closely and personally. And as the years progressed, it just seemed like a very natural. Progression. You know, there was so much that was different about us, obviously, our age, our experience. Right. But there was a lot of similarity. You know, my dad was very much like Ronald Reagan. Um, His (laughs) life story was very similar. He was raised very poor, he was raised in the Midwest. Both of their fathers were alcoholics, but they had these mothers who raised them with tremendous faith and optimism and commitment to service and community and to family. And so I was raised by a man very much like Ronald Reagan. And so meeting the president, of course, was overwhelming. But as I got to know him, I thought, you know, this is a man that is familiar to me in a lot of ways. And so it was Uh just a very comfortable fit. I had that sunny optimism from my dad that the president always shared and, it was a lot of pressure feeling like often I was the face and the voice of the president, but I could predict how he would want things handled and how he would want people treated. And so that was always the guiding factor for mm-hmm. me and my responses. Mm-hmm.
0: To the point about your difference in age, uh, you met Ronald Reagan when he retired, quote unquote, to Los Angeles, but he wasn't exactly right. retired. retired <laughs> wrote, and there was quote, <laughs> no. still work to do. Did working for Reagan change your views of getting older?
1: Oh, he certainly did. You know, I, uh, there's a chapter in the book that I think is called Life at Full Throttle. Mm-hmm. And what a great example he was of living life all the way to the end. And, you know, I'm not going to criticize anybody else's choices, but for me, what an incredible vision of life could have such value and meaning and purpose long beyond the age when a lot of people think oh you know my career is behind me i'm going to retire i'm going to travel or get a motor home and drive around the country which all sounds lovely and wonderful but that wasn't ronald reagan at 69 years old he ran for president of the united states mm-hmm. and the biggest job arguably that anybody could ever have he pursued at a time when most people have thought that their value or their ability to work at that pace or at that level is behind them. And he showed not only is it possible for one term, but for two terms, eight years later, he left with such a high approval rating and then came into his post-presidency years with an ongoing enthusiasm and increased interest in staying engaged and being involved. It would have been very easy for him to say, okay, that was a big eight years. (laughs) I'm old, I'm tired. I'm going to go back to my ranch and just ride my horses and chop some wood and enjoy and relax. But that was not what he wanted to do with those final years of his life. And it really was a great inspiring vision of, How long life can be and how much productivity there can be long after the age when a lot of people see retirement as a goal.
0: Right. And you wrote that he did a lot to keep in shape. I mean, my sense is that even if, you know, this man had never been elected president, he would have continued to stay active as long as he could, working out. And obviously staying in shape was a big part of his Mm -hmm. being active later in life. I like that you wrote that he always had a huge smile on his face. He was happy to be there, happy to be starting another day. This seems to me very key to having a sense of purpose at every age. Mm-hmm. Um, so after three years on the job, you became pregnant with your first child. And, the, and in the book, I thought this was interesting. You wrote, quote, it's ironic when work seems like the easy part of your day. <laughs> how, <laughs> how, how hard was it to balance motherhood with working for a former president, no less? And what sort of support did you have?
1: Yeah, I won't pretend it was easy, nor will I pretend that I did it all on my own. Um, Mm -hmm. I certainly didn't. And, you know, I had a husband who was incredibly supportive. Life is just interesting the way it works out. I actually never thought I would even be a working mom. I was raised by a mother who was well-educated. She taught school for many years. She continued to do night education for adults in the evening, but primarily was devoted to her family and her children during the day. And so that was the model I had, and that's always what I thought I would do. And yet, as a person of faith, I felt like God had called me to that role and that that was where I needed to be and needed to serve the president until it was clear that I was no longer supposed to be there. And so I stepped forward into that very unknown space, having no example of what a working mother can look like and very fearful of, would my kids be okay? Would I be able to do this? You know, a lot of self-doubt that I think we all have. And, Mm -hmm. you know, whether a mother works outside the home or not, um, I think we all doubt, you know, am I doing this right? Am I enough? Um, Is it possible? And so that that was a very uh, challenging time. I had a lot of help and support from family, from friends, from some great nannies that I used over the years who helped, but I, I never relinquished my role as mom. They were still always my children. I wanted my imprint and my fingerprints to be all over their lives, and so I was very intentional about making those things happen when and how I could. I also brought my children along and made them part of what I did as much as possible, and mm-hmm. so what an exposure, I huh? Yeah, and a I always try to present my job <laughs> in a way that I loved it, and I felt honored to be there, and I think when that's the story you tell to your children, they will embrace that, and that's the story they tell about mom, that mom loves her job and is so fortunate to be there, and we're so you know, happy to be part of her life and her experience and part of this amazing opportunity, so at the time, they, of course, didn't really fully understand <laughs> that uh-huh. when they would go to work with mom sometimes and play on the floor of this very nice elderly gentleman who was like a (laughs) grandfather figure to them. They didn't have the context (laughs) that this man was really a special man, but kids are very intuitive. They knew that they liked him because they knew that he liked them and what a great judge of character kids always are. So they always felt welcome There and enjoyed being there, and so never resented mom going to work because they loved my boss. Mm -hmm. And you have four kids, right? I do have four children. I have a son and three daughters. And they now, of course, have the historical context of, wow, that really was amazing. And not many kids grow up at the feet of Ronald Reagan and get to swim in his pool and go to the zoo with him and celebrate birthdays and Halloween and Christmas with him. But for them, it was just an ordinary part of their day in their life. And Mm -hmm. you don't know what you don't know. Right. (laughs) Yeah,
0: exactly. Peggy, during that time, you were also juggling having a child and your work with caring for your dad, who you wrote went Mm -hmm. from 52 to 82 overnight. Can you talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about that?
1: Yeah, that was very difficult. You know, I growing up was always a daddy's girl. I love my mother, but I was always a daddy's girl and everybody (laughs) knew it. Um, My dad and I just had a very special bond and connection that started from birth and continued until his passing. And so You grow up with dad sort of as your iconic hero, I think in some ways when you're a daddy's girl. And to be in my 20s, to have my dad in his 50s and to get a terminal diagnosis of colon cancer really rocked our world. He went through a brief period of surgery and treatment and they thought that they had gotten it but you know there's this lingering voice in the back of your head that you know that it's just a matter of when not if Mm -hmm. that you just knew it was going to return and so it did return with a vengeance he was given a three to six months to live at his final diagnosis he lived up one week shy of six months and that was heartbreaking Mm -hmm. but life you don't have the luxury of stopping life and sitting at his feet and savoring those moments life goes on and he would want you to. And so my life during that six month period, especially was uh, crazy to say the least. I would get up and get the kids. I had two kids at the time, a two year old and about a six month old And I would get them up and get ready for work and take the kids to the babysitter and I would go to work and then I'd pick up the kids from the babysitter and I would drive out um, about 45 minutes away to see my dad, to spend some time with him, to have dinner with him in the evening, throw the kids back in the car, drive home, go to bed, get up, do it all again. And it was a very taxing, very challenging time because your kids demand so much of you and they They don't understand exactly what's going on, um, even though they're pretty perceptive. Mm -hmm. They don't fully understand it. And you want to be there and present for them. Um, But I didn't want to miss a moment with my dad. And so I have no regret about that crazy schedule. But your heart gets stretched in ways that you can't imagine. And I had never pictured living my life without my dad at such a young age. It just was never something I could have even imagined. And And you don't know that you can go on. Mm -hmm. He was 56 when he passed away and I was 29. Wow. And had two, two little kids. And so it was, it was very, very difficult time and, you know, overlaid with the president's diagnosis was fairly early. And so not really sure how to navigate that space and just feeling very inadequate in so many areas of my life. Um, Inadequate to be a full-time great mother to the kids that I loved and adored. Mm. Inadequate to be a good wife to my husband who, you know, somewhere was so supportive but very much lost in the shuffle between professional demands, personal demands with my family and the children. And what a godsend he was and what a great man to just stick with me and support me and allow me the space to keep all these plates spinning during a very challenging time that stretches you to your limits.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: you always look back at a time like that and you think, you know, you can do it. It's possible. In the middle of it, you don't think you're going to be able to put one more foot in front of the other or take one more breath or be, ever see light at the end of a tunnel. But you do and you realize you're stronger than you think. Yeah, you don't really have time to think, huh? No, your life is a perpetual
0: fire drill. Uh,
1: Exactly, and you want to find a sense of calm even in the storm. You want to find a sense of balance in the imbalance because, especially with children, you don't want to miss. They're only two one time. They're only six months for a short period of time.
0: And how did you find find that joy in
1: those moments?
0: Yeah, how did you find it? You know, uh,
1: so there's this misnomer. I think it's a misnomer of work-life balance. And that goes for relationships or work or professional life or family, um, that we have to find balance. And I don't know that balance is possible. And especially when you're in a professional role that demands not only so much physically, emotionally, time-wise, um, really stretches you. I'm, I travel quite a bit now. I really believe in the whole idea of work-life present. And so where you are, be fully present. And so if I'm at work and it requires me to work a 12 hour day that day, then I'm going to work every minute that I can doing my best, working my hardest with excellence and efficiency to make sure that the time I am present at work is fully maximized. And then when I go home, I'm going to try to be fully present with my family and it may be a shorter period of time, but I'm going to be present and I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to take those snapshots in my mind of those moments. I'm going to intentionally create memories. I'm going to connect with my children, not just be home, but be intentional about being present mm-hmm. with them. And it's easier said than done, sure. um, but that's the way I do it so that I don't feel guilty all the time of <laughs> all the things that I'm not and all the things that I didn't do because that doesn't make for happy children or a happy family either, if mom's always feeling guilty and bad. So I find intentionally creating joy, focusing on the moments that we are together and celebrating those really does make a difference and also framing the work and the time that I'm away in a way that that they're connected to it and that it's beneficial for the family or that it's good for me professionally or that they see that it's good and they don't feel bad oh poor mommy's at work all day how sad she must be miserable Um, (laughs) if they see that I can also have joy and find fulfillment there as well and that I do miss them but I do find joy in my work I think that helps them too. Be willing to share, Mom, a little more eagerly. But it's
0: also okay to cry, right?
1: (laughs) It is. It is. And I am not a crier, but I have to tell you, I shed a lot more tears in those few years than I ever, (laughs) ever had. I think maybe I had been saving up my whole life because I'm just, I feel very deeply, but I'm just not a crier. But yeah. my my emotions were pretty raw and stretched during some of those years. Mm-hmm. And, but I had to hold it together because in the office, I not only had to keep up with the president, but I had to keep three paces ahead of him because right. he relied on me to set the pace and the tempo for the day. If he came to my desk and needed something, I had to have it already prepared because I had anticipated it. I had to constantly be watching the clock and keeping him on time and keeping him on schedule and mm-hmm. choreographing the complicated maneuvers of guests in and out. Anytime we left his office, it was this very complex um, Dance. movement uh, with yeah. the Secret Service. Right. And it just, you know, I go into great detail about that just to show how difficult it is for a man of this stature, even to do the simplest thing. And so all of that I had to be plugged into and fully present there and paying attention to because the stakes and the consequences were quite high, whether it was sending out a letter with an error in it um, that he would sign. I mean, that would have been horrifying. But even worse, you know, if I caused something to be unsafe for him or uncomfortable for him or created some sort of a press incident, I mean, very aware of every motion and every word um, that I said and did just so that it would reflect properly and not ever reflect poorly on him. Mm-hmm. You wrote
0: of what I thought was a very touching story of the president's welcoming a family whose son had Asperger's syndrome. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because this seemed to me very emblematic of no matter what you think about this man's politics, this was such a, a moving passage. I wondered if you could share that.
1: Sure. You know, we picture these presidents meeting with world leaders. And of course, over the years, there was these iconic figures that came through the office from Gorbachev to Margaret Thatcher to Mother Teresa, um, to world leaders from all over the globe. Mm -hmm. But it was very important to him to always stay connected to real people and to the American people. And so People who would write into the office a lot of times would be granted an appointment to see him. And there was one particular letter that came in that got an immediate yes from the office to bring him in. And it was a little boy whose family had written saying that he had Asperger's, which is a form of autism and he was obsessed and fixated on Ronald Reagan (laughs) and had read every book and done all his research and knew every fact about Ronald Reagan and his life. And the family asked if it would ever be possible to meet the president in Person. And so the day came, the family arrived, all excited. The little boy, you know, darling, well dressed. You know, you could, he was maybe about seven or eight years okay. old, I mm-hmm. recall. And, you know, in his dress shirt, looking terribly uncomfortable, but mom <laughs> made him dress very nicely. <laughs> um, and you could tell the family was very nervous because they didn't know exactly how he was going to respond. And I assured them that the president would be wonderful and was so excited to see him. And so, um, you know, nobody ever surprises the president. So the president, of course, had a briefing paper that told exactly who was coming right. and a little bit about the boy. And so he knew exactly what to expect. So the little Little boy walks in and looks up at President Reagan and says, you're Ronald Reagan. <laughs> he says, yes, I am. <laughs> and it was darling because he just launches into this laundry list of facts and rapid fire questions, but not even really waiting for the answers and just kind of spewing out all these things that he knows about Ronald Reagan. And it was adorable just to see the president looking down at him with such kindness in his eyes and just really enjoying this little boy. And so every now and then the little boy would stop and would ask the president a question. And so the president would answer and he'd say, that's right. And, you know, there was a couple of times (laughs) that the president would answer and the little boy would say, no, that's not right. And (laughs) the president would kind of look at me like, Hmm, okay, (laughs) (laughs) and just kind of rolled with it and went along with it and had a wonderful time. And it was such a special day for the family. And the president really enjoyed it as well. And I, I loved the fact that Ronald Reagan never took himself too seriously. He never thought he was too important or too busy to meet with people. These were appointments that he really enjoyed and really enjoyed connecting with all kinds of people and appreciated people who were interested in him and in his story, and was just a very gracious, very kind man, whether it was with a world leader or a little boy with Asperger's.
0: Mm-hmm. So after working for the president for about five years, you noticed a change, which you describe in your chapter, Seasons of Change. For me, this was an extremely moving, these chapters. Uh, they were very raw they felt really like, mm-hmm. you know, it was really hard for you to write about that. Tell us about that moment mm-hmm. during his telling of one of your what you'd call oldie but goodie stories and, and how that all played out.
1: Yeah, you know, he was a great storyteller. He he had a joke and a story for every occasion, Mm -hmm. and he was masterful at telling them and could captivate an audience, whether it was one person or a thousand people. And so he would tell, there were certain stories he loved to tell. Sometimes it was connected to an artifact in his office, and when people would come in, it was usually a nice way to break the ice. Um, and to get them laughing and get them comfortable. He wanted people to be comfortable in his presence and jokes and storytelling were a great way of doing that. And so a lot of times I'd heard these stories many, many times. Mm -hmm. And I remember one day in particular, he was telling a story I'd heard him tell a thousand times and he kind of stopped midway and then backed up and sort of finished the story. And I didn't really think anything of it, but as the weeks went on, I noticed there were a couple little times that things like that happened. And you know, you, you talk about, like, the raw emotion of writing the book. It was really interesting as I was looking back. I almost thought, gosh, was I stupid? <laughs> was I not paying attention? Did I not know? Hmm. Did I not connect the dots? Did I not see the signs? But you have to realize that now you would see behaviors like that and people would think, oh, I wonder if they have Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. Back then, we only have the luxury of being able to do that because Ronald Reagan announced to the public he had Alzheimer's and so much research and attention went to it. Back in the day, nobody really knew what Alzheimer's was. And I knew that I was working for a very elderly gentleman. And so to me, it was just you know, a little dementia, senility. Right. everybody mm-hmm. loses their play. I can't, I can't tell a joke or a story if my life depends on mm-hmm. it. So mm-hmm. I admired the fact he could ever do it at all. So I just kind of chalked it up as, you know, he's an old man and old men kind of, and women sometimes do funny things. And you just don't really think much about it. And you overlay this with the fact that I'm very young, mm-hmm. not a lot of experience right. with elder issues And when I leave the office, I go home to a bunch of little kids and life goes on and I don't spend a lot of time pondering, you know, what's going on at the office. I also didn't think it was really my place to comment or think too much about something that seemed to be a personal or a health issue Mm -hmm. um, because I worked for him in a professional capacity. And so it was just this interesting place of I was taking notice, but I didn't really feel like it was my place to do anything about it or what could I do even if it was. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of this period of time that was just odd. It was unsettling. I didn't know what to think of it. I didn't know if I should even think about it, but it definitely was unsettling.
0: Mm -hmm. And you talked about it with a senior staffer eventually. Is that right?
1: Eventually I did because I thought that maybe, you know, since I worked with him so closely, maybe I was the only person who was noticing some of these things. And so at some point I thought, you know, maybe it is my obligation to, Step up and say something, and so I spoke with another woman in the office who said that she had noticed and been concerned, and had talked with Mrs. Reagan about it. And so it was something they were looking into, and again, very politely. But it was as if you know it, they're looking into it; it's a private issue, and right. you know, <laughs> go about go about your business. Um, mm-hmm. So I just started taking notice of what I thought might be helpful to him and how I could kind of work around things that I was noticing that were becoming more of a pattern. And so it was more not trying to do anything with him, but how could I be flexible and how could I adjust and how could I change what I was doing so that his day would go smoother.
0: Hmm. And then they went to the Mayo Clinic in the summer of 94 you wrote about that, and a day in November, mm-hmm. that that little black cloud burst into a full storm. Can you talk about that, the letter, and what was your reaction?
1: Yeah, you know, the day before the letter was released to the nation, I was called into the chief of staff's office, and all the senior staff was in there, and I was asked to shut the door, which we had a very open door policy in the office, so you knew when the door sh- was shut, it was something serious Mm -hmm. and they handed me the letter which would be released the following day and asked me to read it and so that beautiful letter you know addressed to my fellow Americans I held it and read it and you know my mind was racing and spinning what does this mean and what now and it answered so many questions but at the same time opened up so many new areas of questioning for me um and personally, that was something that was very tough to absorb. But then to know that the next day we had to take that information and share it with the world and knowing how the world would react to that was another part of that heartache that I I just could not even have anticipated that that might have even been the more difficult part, at least for the, you know, the next few months that were coming up. Um, I had sat outside this man's office every day for several years. I saw the outpouring of love and affection for this man. It wasn't political. People just, you know, were drawn to his charisma, his warmth, his charm. And I thought of all those people who loved and admired him so greatly and how heartbroken they were going to be in hearing this news and feeling very guilty that I was going to be part of being the bearer of bad news for something that I couldn't fix. I couldn't solve I couldn't change and I certainly didn't have any answers to and I had this overwhelming feeling that I was about to become an expert on something that I knew nothing about and that I really didn't want to know anything about Mm -hmm. and your instinct is to run you know you're afraid you want to run I don't want any part of this and yet I felt so connected to him personally that I knew that I would stay with him to the end I felt very ill-equipped at times and yet We had such a great working relationship, and I knew him so well. I thought, I don't know if anybody's ever equipped to handle this, but I'm as equally equipped as anybody, I think, because of the existing relationship we have. But Um, yeah, I'm very... terrifying time. You don't you don't know what's next and what to expect or you don't know what it means.
0: And I want to make it clear to our listeners that this is a letter that was written by President Reagan and your staff in which he disclosed that he had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease in Mm -hmm. case our listeners aren't clear about that. And it was around this time that your father's colon cancer returned. You, You said your final goodbyes to your father in 1996 and you wrote In many ways, it was through my father's illness that I learned how to respond to the president as his disease progressed.
1: Wow. I bet mm-hmm. you didn't expect that, huh? Tell us more no, about that. No, especially not that young. You just can't, you can't fathom that. And I felt, as my father was aging very quickly, in a lot of ways I felt I was aging <laughs> very quickly uh-huh. as well. And I was having to deal with very grown-up issues that I didn't really want to deal with. But we don't choose these things, That's and certainly right. my father didn't choose his illness. Ronald Reagan certainly didn't choose his illness. And so what they need at those times are to be surrounded by love and consistency and with people who will stick with them to the very end through the ugliness and the pain and the heartbreak. And it's easier to run away and it's harder to walk through it with them. But I wouldn't have wanted to be anyplace else, even though that was the harder path. You don't want to be anyplace else except right there beside them Mm -hmm. to the very end.
0: And how did Mrs. Reagan change after that? I know you had a Eventually, you developed quite a a relationship with her. Uh, Very Mm -hmm. respectful, very warm. By all accounts, as I mentioned to you before, my mom worked in the White House as a volunteer when the Riggins were in office, and she had nothing but great things to say about Nancy. Um, So tell me a little bit about your relationship with her and how she changed after her husband's diagnosis, if
1: at all. Yeah, she and I had always had a very warm and friendly relationship, very respectful. Um, I dealt with her a little bit over the years prior, you Mm -hmm. know, especially on events where they both overlapped. We would, you know, I'd see her often up at the house bringing things back and forth. I would talk to her fairly often Um, after the president's diagnosis. though, of course, those conversations increased. I have such admiration for that woman. What a strong woman. She was a woman who always preferred to... Be behind her husband, supporting him and following his lead. Um, but she was really called upon in those later years to step to the forefront and really to be the champion of his legacy. And that was not a role that she ever would have probably sought out, but mm-hmm. it was one she was willing to to take on and she became more involved in, you know, his care. She was a very hands-on caregiver and You know, I know there's so many great groups out there that provide support. Well, imagine being Nancy Reagan and you can't really go to a support group. There's not very many people you can even talk to um, because there's such a fear that information will leak or things will be inappropriately Um, you know, sent out. And so uh, there was this real isolation she had to have felt. And she just was such a great champion for him. She was such a good caregiver for him. Um, You know, I describe in my book visiting him up until really up until right before he passed away. And every time I saw him at home, he was so beautifully dressed. His hair was well groomed, his nails well manicured. Mm He looked seemed so clean and healthy and um, just she really did an incredible job of making those incredibly difficult years as good as they could have been for him. And I have such admiration for her because she never made it about her. It was still always about her husband. She was fully devoted to him to the very end. And what a remarkable role model of commitment and loyalty through some very challenging time mm-hmm. all the way to the end,
0: and she had survived cancer herself, so promoting cancer awareness connected to her desire to promote alzheimer 's awareness
1: I mean you see the heart of true public servants, and so at this point in ronald reagan 's life, he was very elderly, he was for the most part you know not in the public eye or arena very much. It would have been very easy for them to just go off to the ranch or. Stay in isolation in their home in Bel Air. And honestly, you know, they probably could have gotten away for a lot of years with nobody even knowing. Mm-hmm. But that was not the Reagan style. And um, with Mrs. Reagan's breast cancer, with um, a, a colon polyp that um, President Reagan had when he was president in the White House, they believed that talking about it openly and publicly would bring awareness, would bring valuable research, and would take away a lot of the shame and the stigma that's attached with some of these illnesses. You know, Alzheimer's Not only wasn't well known, but people didn't talk about it. There was almost this shame or this embarrassment if they had a family member with Alzheimer's. Nobody would admit it, and nobody would ever take them out in public. It was just there was a lot of shame, I think, attached to that. And I really applaud the Reagan's being. Such public figures to be willing to put themselves out there and say, This is nothing to be ashamed about. You know, whether you're the President of the United States or just an ordinary American, you know, disease affects us all, and let's see what we can do together to to solve it or raise money for research or move forward in advances that will help or maybe even prevent these awful illnesses. Mm -hmm. So that was important to them. And that, again, goes to their heart of public service. Mm -hmm.
0: I know you wanted to read a passage from your book. I do have a few more questions for you, but have at it.
1: Okay. So we were talking about Mrs. Reagan, and um, I just wanted to read a part that um, talks about her role as caregiver and my role just in supporting her and in her support of him. So in the book, it says, I never thought of myself as a caregiver to the president. That was Mrs. Reagan's role and one she did amazingly well. He also had a household staff who assisted and supported him. We all worked together to ensure the president's comfort and to coordinate everything as seamlessly as possible. Yet in a much smaller way, I'm sure I shared many of the feelings and emotions that caregivers everywhere feel daily. Am I doing this right? Am I being loving enough and patient enough? Am I giving him the freedom he needs along with the support he needs? Am I doing too much for him? And in doing so, am I insulting him? Hmm. Am I not doing enough for him so that he's feeling inadequate or frustrated? Do I have what it takes to not only get through this myself, but be a champion for him as well? What will he ask of me? What will he not ask of me that I need to do for him anyway? Do I have the physical stamina and the emotional fortitude To withstand the heartbreak, I will endure a little bit more every single day. Whether or not you have the title of caregiver, if you care about someone and are giving of yourself on their behalf, then you likely have shared these emotions and these doubts. It's a constant reckoning with yourself, being stretched beyond what you thought possible. And in many ways, you need to double your capacity to do and to love, providing enough for both of you. Can you find a way to forgive yourself for not being enough or not living up to what you think you need to be? Can you give yourself the grace to be enough, just as you are, flawed but willing, available and present, regardless of qualifications or lack thereof? Showing up is noble, courageous and fearless in and of itself. In the midst of it all, it's hard to see the value you add, but in hindsight, you will hopefully realize that you gave all you had and that was enough. I was so young when these responsibilities fell on my shoulders, yet having already endured a similar crisis and loss. I had learned that you can regret the circumstances and endure the sadness while still embracing the opportunities for growth. You can find within yourself heroic strength and poise and patience and goodness you never knew was there. I learned to seek and find a sense of balance amidst a life of imbalance.
0: That's an excerpt from Peggy's book, The President Will See You Now, My Stories and Lessons from Ronald Reagan's Final Years. Peggy, you end the book the same way that you started it, preparing for a funeral. In the beginning, it was Mrs. Reagan's funeral, and in the end, it was the president's. Um, Mm -hmm. Was that a particular structure that you chose? And tell us more about why you wrote this book and what you'd like the readers to take away from it.
1: Yeah, well... I was approached to write the book um, about a year ago, and I've been traveling the nation and sometimes internationally as well, just telling my stories and sharing the leadership lessons and principles and experiences and reflections I've had with the Reagans over so many years. And so I would say the book actually began with Mrs. Reagan's passing, and I, I did a blog post on not only what her passing had meant to me and the emotion of that experience, but also looking back at what it had all meant. By then, I had been affiliated and connected with the Reagans for 27 years. Wow. And so, as a very young person, I mean, that was more than half of my life had Mm -hmm. been immersed um, and connected with the Reagans. And the perspective of time allows you to look back and frame it in a way that you can't possibly do when you're in the middle of it. And I had been asked over the years several times, you know, would you write a book? And, I didn't even know what that book would say. And I think as Mrs. Reagan passing, I felt like the story was then complete and it gave me a perspective of the totality of the story, not just pieces of the story. And so The book does begin with Mrs. Reagan's passing, with her funeral. It's the prologue of the book. And so 27 years later, I jump back into that role where I'm assisting with funeral preparations and being part of the family and the friends and that world again. And then reflecting back to the beginning in chapter one, you know, it starts with how it all began and how that journey began. And then the end of the book goes through the end of his life, um, which I think is a fitting way To end. And so the bookends of the story start from a very young age, my visions and dreams for what my life would be, and how this crazy journey of this ordinary girl wound up um, intersecting the life of an extraordinary man, and how it changed my life, and how I believe the lessons that we can learn from him can still have the power to impact and change lives. And through my story, I hope other people will see their story. Everybody can relate to being young and green and stepping into a new office or a new place for the first time and feeling a little out of place and unsure if they have a place there. Everybody hopefully can relate to being in a role where you find your footing and you feel like you're gaining momentum and you have confidence that you're adding value to a space. And then a lot of people can relate to that phone call that you get, that things have changed. There's a father with an illness. There's a tragic death. Something has happened that causes you to really reevaluate where you're at in your life and challenge yourself to think, can I do this? Do I have this in me to go on and to become adaptable? And then saying goodbye to people we love. I mean, that's something, unfortunately, most of us have experienced now or will have experience with and how heartbreaking that is. And so his story is one of a remarkable life. Mine is the tale of an ordinary girl who was just the luckiest person in the world to wind (laughs) up outside his office. Um, And so Everybody can't relate to being president of the United States, but I think everybody will find something in my story that they can relate to and hopefully be inspired. Like Ronald Reagan always inspired us that even in decline, even in final twilight years of his life, that there can be an elegance and a gracefulness and a vision and optimism for the future. And I hope that's what the readers will take away.
0: You wrote, quote, I could not help but wonder what he would say about our world if he were alive today. And you wrote that Reagan always used we when he spoke on TV, we Americans, we the people, we as a nation. Mm-hmm. What do you think Reagan would make of our world today and of a president who references himself a lot and promises that he alone can save our nation?
1: Yeah. You know, Ronald Reagan was a great optimist. He always believed America's best days were ahead. And he did believe that we, the people, tell the government what to do, not the other way around. And he always saw himself as not being better than anybody else, but just fulfilling his God-given role. And if you were doing the same in life, then we were all equal. And that was a good place for you to be, was to be fulfilling your role um, that you were given in life. And I think politics is kind of displaying sort of a crassness and a vulgarity in society in a very vivid way, especially during the election year. But that is pervasive throughout society. I mean, Mm -hmm. Ronald Reagan probably would not only be appalled by the political climate, (laughs) um, but would be appalled by the entertainment culture and by everything. He was a man of old-school manners and kindness and graciousness, and he would never use a swear word or tell an off-color joke in front of a woman, Um, not because he was sexist, but because that was just, in his mind, very inappropriate. And so he was very concerned with how other people felt and what they thought. And there was a civility in the way that he did everything. And so I think we think of him in the political arena and want to transpose what he would think about politics, but really is just a gentleman, an old school gentleman. I think that the horror maybe for the way things are would be culturally pervasive and not just tied to politics. And that's, I think, a lesson for all of us to look at. Is this the culture that we want? Is this the culture we want to raise our children in? Is this what we want the next generation to continue down this path? Or is there something to be said for class and for elegance and for a graciousness, which the Reagans definitely represented um, and which I was so blessed to observe and absorb all those years? And maybe there's a need to return to a little bit of that.
0: Peggy Grandy, her book The President Will See You Now, my stories and lessons from Ronald Reagan's final years will be released Tuesday, February 21st, and it's available for pre-order now on Amazon. And you know what? I read this book. It's very compelling, no matter what your political persuasion or your views of Ronald Reagan. I know you're going to enjoy this. It's extremely well written, and um, I hope you pick it up. Peggy, thanks so much for your time and for sharing your memories in this book.
1: Thank you so much for having me on the show and bless your readers wherever they are in their journey of caring for people and loving people in elderly years. It's a big task and a big role and I wish them the best.
0: Okay. Thanks, Peggy. Thank you so much. Okay. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's it for today. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. In the meantime, if you don't want to miss any episodes, visit the AgeWise website. That's A-G-E-W-Y-Z dot com and subscribe to the podcast. The AgeWise podcast is produced by me, Jana Panaritis, and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk Radio Network, the 24-7 streaming and on-demand network that's always on for you. If you'd like to be on the show or just tell us what you think about it, send an email to jana at agewyz.com. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.